Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Almighty Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of your son Jesus Christ our single concern, in whose name we pray, amen. Friends, listen now to the book that we love from Mark chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And when he was on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you were setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, Let any who want to become my followers deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. What will it profit them to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was struck some time ago as I was looking at a photojournalism piece in a newspaper and saw a picture of a wedding photographer working with a couple on their wedding day. The photographer was wearing a blood red dress. She was directing the couple to pose together. And they were posing together on a hill in which they were surrounded by crosses of all different shapes and kinds. The photo was captioned, crosses to bear. And as I read the, the text, 
I, I learned that they were posing in Lithuania on a hill called the Hill of Crosses, where for the last two centuries or so, followers of Jesus have brought and then planted crosses of various kinds on this particular hill, such that today there are over some estimate 100,000 crosses that dot this hillside. As I took that photo in, I was struck by the irony of it. And here's why. Today, the cross has become the most universally recognized symbol in the world. Crosses hang from necklaces, they, are, they feature in oil paintings and sculpture. Over the next couple of months, crosses will be tattooed into the collegiate flesh of spring breakers in our neighborhoods. We today think of the cross as a, as a symbol of Christian faith, of Christianity. We think about it in religious terms. In the world that the text that we listen to comes from, in Jesus' world, the cross was also universally known. But nobody ever thought anything religious or inspiring when they saw a cross. In Jesus' world, the cross was an instrument of of shameful degradation, of torture, of execution. If someone from this first century could have seen that picture of a couple beaming happily on their big day amid a field of crosses, they would react like you would react if you saw a picture of, of a couple taking their wedding photos in a gas chamber or at Guantanamo Bay or in a field filled with electric chairs. And so... It was shocking for Jesus' first followers to hear him talk about the moment when God's kingdom was going to come into the world with power being the moment when he was going to go to a cross. And that that somehow was going to be good news, gospel for the whole world. So I want to invite you just for a few minutes together with me to stand among Jesus' followers and listen as he talks about his cross and about our cross. Now, this text that we heard together, this is, this is the major turning point in the entire Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, here, Jesus, after... After a couple of years of wandering from town to town, city to city, teaching and healing and such, he now will begin a journey resolutely to Jerusalem and to his suffering and death. Now think about it. The whole second half of the book of Mark narrates to us this single journey and Jesus' final days and hours. Think about how different that is from any other memoir or biography or documentary you've ever read. Think about the last time you read, uh, you read a, a biography of some famous person or a, somebody of historical significance or the last time you watched a documentary about someone famous or important. Even if their death was, was a significant part of their life story or if, or if it happened under suspicious circumstances, Oftentimes, in a, in a biography or a documentary, someone's death is only just a, 
a little part of their story. But Mark wants us to see that for Jesus, his death is the story. And so, as soon as Peter arrives at the realization that Jesus is is the Messiah, this long-promised figure from the Hebrew Scriptures that God had promised he would act through to bring his kingdom into the world, to put the world right once and for all, this king to end all kings, the king of kings, as soon as Peter arrives at that realization, Jesus goes on to tell both his followers and anybody else that would listen that yes, he is this long-promised king, but not like you thought. Jesus would be the king to end all kings, but the true king of kings would be a king on a cross. Jesus goes on to say that he must undergo the suffering and death ahead of him. He must suffer and die to once and for all free us from our ancient enemies of sin and death. God's promised king, in order to win the ultimate victory, to rescue God's world, must do it by suffering what seems like the ultimate defeat. Jesus must give his life in order to lavish on us and the world the forgiveness of God Almighty. So I want to pause as we reflect on those words, because I I know that, especially for those of you for whom you know, you're an outsider to Christian faith and, and thinking through what Jesus' words mean for you or, or, you know, if you're somebody for whom it's been a long time since church has really been a significant part of your life, it's easy when we, when we listen to Jesus' teaching that we did this morning to wonder, you know, why does Jesus have to die for God to forgive us? Like, why the cross? Can't God just forgive us? I think if, if that's a question in your mind, you know, if you are someone who, in your own story, you've had, to, you've had to forgive an unfaithful spouse, or you've gone on the journey of, of reconciling with a, with a longtime trusted business partner who betrayed you in some significant way, or you've gone through the process of, of forgiving a parent who was either an absentee or an abuser, you know, if you've had one of those kinds of experiences, yeah, I think you actually know intuitively why Jesus dies on the cross. Because forgiveness, for any of you who have undertaken it, you know forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Uh, Desmond Tutu, who was a, a South African church leader who in the days following the dismantling of racist apartheid in South Africa. He was charged with leading the commission uh, that would do reconciliation work among black and white South Africans. Uh, he wrote a piece about the challenges of that kind of, of, that kind of work uh, that's really compelling, and he talks about this dynamic in it. This is what he says. Uh, he says, we cannot be facile and say bygones will be bygones because they will not be bygones and will return to haunt us. Then he says this, true reconciliation is never cheap for it is based on forgiveness which is costly now you know this intuitively when when you forgive an unfaithful friend or an unfaithful spouse 
or an unfaithful family member, you're essentially telling them, I'm not going to make you pay in a, in a thousand little ways for whatever you did or, or failed to do in my life. I'm not going to make you pay. Instead, I'll pay. I'll bear the cost of not seeking revenge or retribution and of repairing this ruptured relationship. You don't have to pay. I'll pay. The cross is the almighty God of the universe saying to you and I and to the whole world, I'm not going to make you pay. I'll pay. This is what Jesus tells his friends in no uncertain terms. He is traveling to Jerusalem to do for us and for the world. And so Jesus pauses here to, to tell anybody who wants to be his follower in the first century or the 21st that there's, there's one sense in which because Jesus dies, we don't. But there's another sense in which because Jesus takes this journey to the cross, we take it as well. Everybody who followed Jesus, who follows Jesus, he tells us in no uncertain terms, follows him to the cross. Everybody, Jesus says, who wants to be my follower, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus is, in other words, saying that, that if you're going to attach yourself to me, if you're going to belong to me, your old way of doing your life will need to die a death for you to experience the new life that I bring. Jesus here unfolds this paradox that, that in order to find the life that God intends to give us through Jesus, in order to find real life, in order to find ourselves, our true selves, we have to lose ourselves. Uh, the word in, in Greek that Jesus uses here in, this, in the language as part of the Bible is written in is the word psyche. You can hear you know, where we get our word psychology in there. Now, Jesus isn't saying that, that you have to lose your sense of being an individual self or, or your sense of personhood. That's a, that's a teaching of Buddhism. What he's saying is that it's only through attaching your life to his entering into his way of life, that we can experience the genuine, flourishing human life that God intends for us. The only way we can find that true self is by dying to every other kind of false way of living. The only way to find ourselves, really, in other words, is to stop trying to construct a life that's all about ourselves. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He was, a, he was a British Christian and something of a public intellectual in England in the 20th, 20th century. And he came to Christian faith around the middle of his life. And after he did so, he did a series of talks on the BBC uh, designed for, for people skeptical of faith where he talked about Christian faith. And he talks about this dynamic in one of them. This is what he says. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. 
keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. I love how he puts that. Live a life that's that's orchestrated around yourself and you know what you will have in the end? Rage, ruin, and decay. Uh, But give over your whole life to Christ and you get him and everything else besides. So maybe one question for you to reflect on as as you take these words of Jesus back into your life and as we start the journey of Lent is, you know, what, what in my life right now needs to, needs to die so that Jesus can make some part of me new that has yet to really embrace his way? What in me needs to die so that a new, a new part of life in Jesus could rise? When, when we're on the, on the front end of, of looking at that journey, that can seem fearsome and terrifying as it no doubt would have to the very first people who heard Jesus talk about crosses and what it meant to follow him. And yet, when we actually experience it, is that paradoxically it's a journey into life and joy and peace. The journey of of dying to our old way of life just means learning to die to things that are gonna kill you anyway. Learning to die to bitterness, racism, greed, lust, selfishness. Those are things that just decay your life anyway so that you can rise to the new life that is a true life that Jesus longs for you to have. When you actually put one foot in front of the other to take that journey in your life, you find that it's joy because you're following the crucified king of kings who is willing at the cost of his own life to lavish the love of God on you. I had a conversation with somebody just this last week that reminded me of this dynamic. I was talking with a man who is a part of our church community who is, is imminently about to propose marriage to the woman that he's, he's seeing. And Lord willing, he will become a husband and she'll become a wife shortly. And we got together and he, he was asking me about, about marriage and about how I'd got to the point of, of deciding to, to propose to my, wife, my now wife, Monica, and whether that was a scary decision and, and, and you know, what, what that was like. And it made me think about, about that decision and what it involved. And, and all of you who are married or who have been married know that there's one sense in which when you, when you say that one yes, when you open that one door, in so doing, you're, you're saying a lot of other no's and you're closing a lot of other doors. To be sure, entering into that one marriage relationship, saying that one yes with Monica means saying no to a lifetime of other potential women I could have been married to. It meant that I was limiting and changing 
you know, the various trajectories my life could go in. Because now, in all of life's important choices, I wouldn't just be making them on my own anymore. I'd be making them together with another person. And thus, I'd be, I'd be closing some doors on things I could go or where I might live or the things I might do in my life. But on the other hand, even though I knew that saying that one yes would mean saying a lot of no's and that opening that one door would mean closing a lot of doors, was it a, was it a choice that I made with clenched fists or with a scowl? No. Easiest choice I've ever made in my life. You know? I, I get a life with this person. So is it hard to say uh, these other no's? Heck no. Because on the other side of it is this relationship, this love that has changed my life. This is what the journey of following Jesus is too. Augustine of Hippo, who was an ancient uh, pastor in the early centuries of the church, he talks about this dynamic in a, in a sermon that he preached about these words from Jesus. And I'll, I'll just leave you with these words in closing. Augustine says, what Jesus commands is neither hard nor painful when he, he himself helps us in such a way so that the very thing that he requires may be accomplished. For whatever seems hard in what is enjoined, love makes easy. That's what we discover when we lose ourselves in order to find ourselves in Jesus. When we take up the cross and follow, what seems hard, love makes easy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.